so much for coming and presenting. It's so informative to have you here. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, I wanted to ask you, I have seen things um, that say, like it's a beans or seeds, it's a organic, but then some say non, non-GMO. So does it have to have the word non-GMO to be non-GMO? Excellent question. Organic does not allow the intentional use of GMOs or Roundup. The non-GMO project does not focus on Roundup, just GMOs. Organic never requires testing or doesn't generally require testing of stuff for it to be organic. It's a document review. And it could be contaminated with GMOs. If it is, it's usually a low level. Sometimes it's high level but they don't require testing to verify no contamination. The non-GMO project does. So if you see something that says organic and non-GMO project verified, that's the gold standard. It's organic, so it doesn't allow the use of glyphosate or atrazine or other, problem, other nasties like that. It doesn't allow the intentional use of GMOs. Contamination can occur. But even if it says non-GMO project verified and organic, it still might have some contamination because low levels of contamination are the nature of nature. You know, the non-GMO project has a 0.9% action threshold, so they don't have a zero tolerance because that would make it impractical because the supply, even the seed supply, is somewhat contaminated with corn, which readily cross-pollinates, and canola. Next question. In the corner over there. We grew up on Long Island eating local corn all summer long. So obviously we, now that we've changed over and we're not eating GMO, we probably still have all glyphosate in our system. Like how long does that take to get out of your system? Is there anything to do to try to get it out more quickly? That's a good question. Um, I just started a series called Healing from GMOs which helps people do other things besides avoid GMOs. So I interview doctors who have specific products and protocols to help clean the system out. And there was one product, I interviewed the formulator of the product, um, it's called Biome Medic by Purium. And it reduces the amount of glyphosate in the urine by 74% in its preclinical trial, even without the people changing their diet. And according to David Sandoval, who I interviewed twice, the one aspect of the biomedic um, lifts the toxins out of the tissue, another grabs it and takes it out of the body, another rebuilds the microvilli. Uh, so it was very interesting. He, it was formulated specifically to counter the effects of GMOs and Roundup. And uh, if you'd like to, I, I should mention this, because the Institute for Responsible Technology receives some portion of your purchase if you happen to go to the Purium website and enter the code HFGMOS, which stands for Healing from GMOs, HFGMOS. Um, so that was an example of one product that did that. 
Then there was another one um, that was helping to, to combine the tight junctions, and then there was one that was trying to break down the BT toxin inside the stomach before it got into the intestines. So I don't even, I don't even know if the healing from GMOs com website has a way of signing up for it. If you're signed up for responsibletechnology.org, we'll let you know when those start, when those play again. We're going to be interviewing more and more people. Um, I just started this thing, so this is like the first time I'm speaking in public about this, and so I didn't even know. Do I send them to the website? Have I even checked? Um, but in general, the amount of glyphosate in the body should come out if you're not exposed to it. Because um, there is some kind of bioaccumulation, as, dis as discovered by Anthony Samsel, a scientist who was able to procure the secret documents held by the EPA. They were submitted by Monsanto that got their glyphosate approved. And he looked at the radio labeled, uh, radio labeled assays and found that there was glyphosate sticks around in the organs, he said, for 14 days. But that would mean that it would, it would come out after that. I'm not sure, I haven't verified those numbers or seen what happens if someone stops eating it altogether. But even if you stop eating it because you're organic, some organic food is contaminated with it, for sure. It's in the air, especially in the Midwest, where Roundup Ready crops are planted readily. It's in the rain in the Midwest. It's in the drinking supply. It could be in the meat as well, if it's not organic. They checked the urine of European city dwellers, and they found glyphosate in most of those, in most of the urine. It's sprayed on lawns. It's sprayed in parks. It's sprayed on school grounds. We've, they've tested the urine of pets, much higher levels. We tested the urine of pet food, higher than average in human food, but the pets also can absorb the glyphosate in their paws and roll in it absorbed through the skin. So glyphosate is ubiquitous, and you probably will not get 100% free of it in your environment. So you want to minimize it as much as possible in the food, and you want to stop using it and get your homeowners association to stop using it and get your city to stop spraying it, not just glyphosate, but all the toxic herbicides and uh, that they would normally use. And if you go to rounduprisks.com, there's a little training that I did in, in interviewing or asking three people who were able to successfully stop the spraying of Roundup and other toxic chemicals in their municipalities or counties or schools or golf courses or parks. And for some, it took a single phone call and one email. And we, we have uh, on that Roundup Risks what to say and what to send. So because it's ubiquitous and because it's environmentally exposed as well, if you have that energy to do that, or you know someone who does, send them to rounduprisks.com. For some places, it is so easy to change. All they need to know is that there's a non-toxic, cost-effective alternative. And I was just lobbying, uh, I'm a lobbyist, no, I'm not really a lobbyist. Um, I was just in uh, Sacramento, California, giving presentations to members of the Senate there with someone from Irvine who helped convert the city of Irvine and it was kicked out of schools, it was kicked out of the cities, it stopped using in parks, and she said it costs less 
When you use the non-toxic alternatives, you actually end up with healthier soil, healthier lawns. You need less herbicides. And you have 30% less water use, which in California is really important. So you actually are saving money, not the first two years, but after about two years, you're actually saving money every year by building up healthier lawns and healthier gardens and healthier parks. And you don't have to keep spraying Roundup and poisoning people. It doesn't biodegrade like it said on the label for years and then they got convicted of false advertising first in New York and then later in France because they kept falsely advertising it in France after they were convicted in New York. The longest reported half-life, meaning how long it takes for glyphosate to reduce in, in amount by 50%, was 22 years. It's usually much less. That's the longest. Depends on a bunch of conditions. But it doesn't just go away. Who has the microphone? Yeah. So meanwhile, the, the ground up, the glyphosate, goes into the water, goes into the, the ground, goes into the aquifers, and we drink it and shower with it? Yep. 22 years, huh? So the thing is, I talked to someone who was testing water and urine samples. He said, the water's not that common. I mean, it's there, depending on where you live. And so the fact that it's not that common compared to the urine doesn't really settle us individually because it's all about our faucet and our shower. So we don't know. You can actually send your, your water samples in. It's about 100 bucks to see. And there are certain filters. I'm, one of the things I'm going to do for healing from GMOs is identify the different water purifying systems that can clean out glyphosate and other toxic chemicals and interview the people that developed it, etc. Uh, yes, so that is an issue. So the filters, right now there's a bunch of filters that, you know, filtered water that doesn't take out glyphosate. There's a couple we've heard that do and I'm, I'm waiting to get confirmation of that and then I'll share it to our list. Uh, does reverse osmosis, I will let you know. Uh, it'll be part of the, the general report. All right, uh, who wants to have a question that has a microphone over here? You know, you mentioned just a little bit earlier on something about gut microbiome changing, the, I mean, the intestinal uh, gut microbiome in the humans when you consume GMOs or uh, glyphosate. Has there been much studies on uh, this or is it just uh, in these initial stages? So, great question. The studies were done, um, there were some studies done in Germany by Monica Kruger, and she did some laboratory studies on the gut microbiome <coughs> types, species, uh, with glyphosate so that she, it was clear that glyphosate was killing the beneficial ones and not the, the, not the nasty ones. Um, we know that glyphosate is patented as an antibiotic, uh, but there hasn't been any studies of human I inside actual guts with glyphosate. Uh, I've talked to veterinarians. I said, what happens in uh, the livestock after GMOs were introduced to the United States in 1996? And the two livestock 
veterinarians I spoke to said gut bacteria completely changed. One actually had to create a cultured pro proper gut bacteria and gave kind of a yogurt to the animals to, to fix it. I've heard similar things with horses that the gut bacteria changed when they introduced GMOs into their diet. Um, there's a lot of uh, uh, case study or anecdotal evidence of, of gut bacteria changing according to uh, healthcare practitioners who are looking for it and see the changes when they go back. Uh, my, David Perlmutter, who's uh, focused on the microbiome a lot, he wrote uh, Brain, Grain Brain and Brain Maker. He's in the film. You may have seen him, recognized him from the trailer. He talks about the negative impacts of glyphosate in his book and in our film. So there is not enough studies for me to say this is the exact type of dysbiosis that occurs when you consume this amount of Roundup. Um, that's the way it is with a lot of, I, in the article that I wrote for the International Journal of Human Nutrition and Functional Medicine, which you can go to, I'm giving out a lot of URLs, um, you, go, you go to nongmosimprovehealth.com, nongmosimprovehealth.com. You can read the actual article, you can read a summary that I've written for lay people, you can watch an interview I did with Michelle Perro, and you can even sign up to receive a free copy online of my book, um, Genetic Roulette. Uh, so in, there, in that actual article that's peer-reviewed, um, I list a lot of different information about glyphosate and indicate whether or not there has been in vivo, in, in human or in animal studies, or whether more needs to be done. And sometimes they'll test levels of glyphosate that are too high. So we could say, oh yeah, it's an endocrine disruption, but it's middle dose or high dose. They haven't tested the low dose as an endocrine disruptor. What's interesting is that glyphosate as a whole is just, I mean, Roundup as a whole is, just, is glyphosate plus all these other adjuvants or so-called inert ingredients, which some of them are, one is 10,000 times more toxic than glyphosate. They are also endocrine disruptors. They're more toxic than the so-called active ingredient. But all that Monsanto has to do is to say, oh no, just glyphosate's the active ingredient. And then the EPA says, okay, send us your data on just glyphosate. We'll ignore the whole soup. Even though Roundup can be 125 times more toxic than glyphosate alone. Next question. In Seeds of Deception, you talk about biotech's belief in the one-to-one -one ratio between genes to proteins. Can right. you maybe um, discuss that a little bit? Sure. Um, there's been a history of reductionism in science, where in order for us to understand things, we pretend that they're simple. And we create formula or ideas that are entirely wrong. And the history of genetics is like that. Talked to one, scientist, one professor, he said, it used to take one day in a genetics class to explain what a gene is. Now it takes a whole semester. Originally they thought, oh, it's the individual proteins in our bodies that produce our traits Proteins are produced by genes. So we'll assume that one gene will produce one protein, will produce one trait. So there was the Human Genome Project where they wanted to 
look at all the different genes, and there was over 100,000 proteins in the human body, and they were looking for over 100,000 genes, and they got like 23,000. So they went, oh, what's the matter with that? Well, it means like we have like similar number of genes to, you know, rodents, certain plants. Certain plants have more genes. So it, it, blew, it blew their minds. It turns out that one gene can produce many proteins. It can produce a long stretch of RNA, which then can be chopped and reconnected. So it can produce up to dozens or even hundreds of different combinations of RNA, which then produce the amino acid string, which is then folded into a protein. So the entire basis of genetic engineering was based on one gene produces one protein, produces one trait. There's only a handful of traits like that, and they happen to get two right, Roundup Ready and Bt Toxin. But it turns out that genes interact with other genes. I mean, the arrogance of this reductionist model is interesting. It used to be that 98% of the DNA was called junk. We didn't know what it was, so we said, oh, just the coding portions, just the genes that code for proteins, that's what's important. But the other 98% junk genes. Turns out they regulate gene expression. I was talking to Dr. Michael Antonio he, from King's College in, in London. He's a human genetic engineer. He does a lot of work in gene research. And he was defending the anti-GMO pro-science movement. Anti-GMO is pro-science. The GMO is junk science. So he was meeting with a bunch of other scientists in this big national debate sponsored by the UK government. And he said, the biotech industry's scientists, plus the UK government scientists, which were all biotech industry scientists, they were so ignorant about basic genes. They said, it doesn't even matter what order you put the genes in. You can split them up and put them in any order, and it's all the same thing, because it's just one gene produces one. They were completely wrong, and the gene genetic engineering had already been introduced into the food supply. So Michael Antonio, Dr. Antonio said to me, these guys could have benefited from a basic level in study in genetics, and these are the people defending genetic engineering. So... There's a number of assumptions that were used as the basis for safety claims. In my second book, Genetic Roulette, there's a four-page list of assumptions that turned out to be wrong and what the implications of that are. One was that Bt toxin does not affect mammals. Well, it does affect mammals. In fact, in India, people harvesting the cotton, the Bt cotton, are getting itching and uh, asthma and flu-like symptoms and, and, and having to go to the hospital sometimes. Some people that clean the cotton have to take antihistamines every day in order to clean the cotton. People leaning against the cotton bundles can get rashes. When the animals were allowed to graze on the BT cotton plants after harvest, many died. Sheep, goats, buffalo. I went to one village where all 13 buffalo died after grazing for a single day on the BT cotton plants. And they had grazed on normal cotton plants for up to eight years. And in fact, I talked to someone who was involved in the autopsy. 
and he described the problems with the organs and the uh, messed up digestive tract. Other good news? No. Um, <laughs> we'll get to the good news in a minute. I, I don't want to leave you like, thank you, Jeffrey. <laughs> I'm going to not eat now. Uh, we have a, uh, who has the microphone? Okay. Thank you. Is it the glyphosate or the BT that disrupts the, the gut and makes holes in it? And if it, if that's, if I understood you to say that that can multiply itself in your gut, how can it ever be eliminated? All right. I'm going to be very specific. It might be, might be that the, that the corn gene transfers to gut bacteria and then is still functioning. No one studied that. I talked to one of the scientists who did the research that was published in 2004 in Nature Biotechnology that showed part of the Roundup Ready gene transferred to human gut bacteria but they didn't know whether it was continuing to function. So if it transferred, but it's simply dead, then nothing happens. I'll get to the, the leaky gut in a minute. I was at a lecture, and I think someone from Monsanto stood up in the back and said, if Mr. Smith is trying to tell you the genes transfer to gut bacteria, he's a fear monger, because we eat you know, green plants all the time, and we're not green. That was their scientific uh, level of understanding. So I said, uh, first of all, you're absolutely right that if you eat plants, they generally don't transfer to gut bacteria. Bacteria pass genes back and forth readily. They're very prolific. They do that. That's how they talk. That's how they gain traits. But the reason they can do it is because the genes are similar, or homologous is the word that they use. The plant genes are very different, and so they don't generally transfer. If they did, the promoter which turns them on won't function in the biology of the bacteria. They're longer than the bacterial genes, and they have other things called introns inside, so the bacteria would have no idea what to do with them. So if genes transferred from plants to gut bacteria, which would be rare, probably nothing would happen. However, the genes that are inserted into the GMOs on the market are largely bacterial genes. So they're homologous to gut bacteria. They're similar. They're not overly long. They don't have introns, and the promoter is artificially put into those that turn them on is from a virus that functions in bacteria. So we have eliminated all the boundaries between genetic transfer and expression. Meaning that there is a much higher likelihood that we're walking around with living pesticide factories, with living factories producing genetically modified proteins, and that was all ignored when GMOs were put on the market. So I say it may happen, but we don't know. You asked which one creates leaky gut? Yes. <laughs> the answer is yes. Bt toxin pokes holes in cells. 
Now, it pokes holes in cells when it's in high concentrations in a test tube environment. Higher concentrations then are supposed to be found in the corn. But in my article, I explained that it might be that it actually is in higher concentrations than we think in the gut. So it might poke holes in human cells at the concentrations that are relevant. That pokes holes in the cells. The, beat, the roundup creates gaps between the cells. There's two types of leaky gut. And it appears that GMOs might promote both. Who has a question? There's a question right over here, right behind you, right behind you. I want to know if you have a website for people who want to um, not use chemicals on their lawns. You know, how do we maintain our lawns without using bad things? Yes, good. Rounduprisks.com. It has a section on alternatives to Roundup. Rounduprisks.com. Who else has a question? As for the continuing dangers when GMOs manage to go from generation to generation and the changing of proteins? Ah, inheritable traits. You like to bring up the scary stuff, don't you? How many people have heard of epigenetics? Above genetics. You can have genes and people may say, oh, it increases your risk of this or increases your risk of that. But unless that gene expresses you don't know if it's actually affecting your health. What you eat, what you're exposed to, can it change genetic expression? And it's possible that if you expose some food to a mouse, that its offspring will change its genetic expression and its hair color will diff be different, the coat color and its offspring will be different. So feeding the pregnant my, mouse may change gene expression in future generations. The genes are the same, but the genetic expression is different. Double-stranded RNA might change gene expression for more than one generation. When we think about we think about what's in food. It's got vitamins and minerals and phytochemicals. But now we know it has RNA. The RNA from food can affect gene expression and it may be far more impactful on our health than we ever thought possible. So if we're changing the DNA, we're changing the RNA, and so it could be that we are changing the impact of food, the intelligence of food, on our bodies without knowing, without, with being babes in the woods. Just the early stages of understanding genetics, and yet we're making massive changes. So yes, inheritable changes are possible. Thank you for listening to Live Healthy, Be Well. Please subscribe to the podcast using whatever app you listen to podcasts with. Or go to livehealthybewell.com to subscribe. 
This podcast will inform you about health dangers, corporate and government corruption, and ways we can protect ourselves, our families, and our planet. I interview scientists, experts, authors, whistleblowers, and many people who have not shared their information with the world until now. Please share the podcast with your friends. It will enlighten and may even save lives. Safe eating.